All right, let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the blood of Christ and all that you have shown us in your word and through your revelation. We ask that you would uh, show us uh, yourself this morning in the text. Uh, be with my words as I speak. Let them speak your words to the congregation and let it bless us that we may go forth in the week. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, if you could get your Bibles out, if you have one, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. It's quite a long passage, so I kind of want you to be able to follow along with it, hence the seating first. Um, so hear the word of the Lord. Uh, sorry, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 22, not just the whole chapter. Uh, so hear the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established." For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying... This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So it's quite a lengthy passage, and um, Pastor Ralph and the elders allowed us, Kyle and I, to choose our passages, as you know, that we get to preach on. And I chose Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews 10 is next week for a specific reason, because it was something that for a long time was very confusing to me. I would read this passage, I would read Hebrews 9, 10, and not really understand it, to be honest, but sometimes I'd act like I understood it. And really at the core of it, as I entered seminary and started to read more and more, and um, I started to understand it more, was this understanding of what is the new covenant, and what does it mean to be new? And I first want to pause and talk about that word, new. Uh, what is it, when we say new, what does that mean and convey to other people? For example, last year we had to buy a new car. And you might already be thinking, well, did they buy a brand new car or a new used car? Or is that just a used car? And when we bought the car, I was honestly confused what to say to people. Like, hey, I bought a used car. But then that sounds kind of weird. So then I was like, hey, I bought a new used car. And then that sounded weird. So hey, I bought a new car, but not brand new. That also is like, what are you talking about? And so we see already just in our English vernacular, the usage of the word new comes with a lot of nuances. Uh, similarly, we talk about the cycles of the moon. Right? We have a new moon. That's when it's completely dark. Is it actually a new moon? No, it's the same moon, but a new cycle of the moon. We don't go and correct everyone and say, no, what you actually mean is a new cycle of the moon, not a new moon. So we give these labels. And even, you know, <clears throat> drawing that analogy further, presidency, the office of the president. We say we have a new president. Well, we have a new president in one way. They make different laws. They might stand for different things. But the office of the presidency hasn't actually changed. It's, they still have the same powers that they had before. So in a sense, it is a, a new president, but it is only new in certain ways. And so we need to apply the same analysis when we talk about the covenants, because there's a lot of confusion in the churches and the teachings I had where people would say it's the new covenant, so the old is useless. And then I had to read Augustine. And Augustine famously said, in the old is the new concealed, and in the new is the old revealed. And I was kind of confused. I was like, oh, this guy believes there's a connection there. That's really important. But what is that connection? And what does it mean to be new? And so I often think of the analogy of plants as a good analogy as we approach this text. Right? A seed, an acorn, tiny, tiny acorn, grows into a tree that can be like 100 feet tall. Now I have a question. Is there anything new about the tree 100 feet tall in comparison with the acorn? Well, you're probably wondering like, well, yes, but no. Right? It, it progresses over time and grows. And the same is with God's revelation in salvation to mankind. It starts as a seed, we see in Genesis 3.15. And over time, it grows into the, what is called the fullness of time. As we see in Hebrews chapter one, he says we have come upon the fullness of time when all things have been revealed in salvation. And so I want us to be thinking in that way when we talk about old and new, what is new and what is the same? 
because some things are exactly the same. Some things haven't changed, but some things have become new. And so let's dive into the text, right? In Hebrews 9, we see that the author talks about a first covenant, and he's referring to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant given um, on Mount Sinai. But I have a question. Is that really the first covenant ever that God made with mankind or with the people of Israel? If you think back, after the flood, God makes a covenant with all mankind called the Noahic covenant. And there you have a promise from God given to the people marked by a sign, the rainbow. And the promise is that he'll never destroy mankind with water again. And so what we see is that the sign of the covenant points to the promise and the covenant giver, not to the covenant receiver there. Similarly, you have the Abrahamic covenant. And that occurs before the Mosaic covenant as well. And you, there you also have a promise and a sign, the sign of circumcision, and a promise to Abraham. And then you stumble upon the Mosaic covenant. And the question is, well, isn't that the third covenant? So why does the offer refer to it as the first covenant? Well, it is the first covenant that allows for the atonement of sins. If you notice before in the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, there was no regulations or stipulations where God created a way to atone for a wrongdoing. Right? God's command is violated, but there's a promise. There's these other things given by God, but there's no way to atone for sin. And so the first step is he establishes his law with the Mosaic covenant. And the law is given for a specific purpose. And then he also establishes the regulations of sacrifices. And those are given to atone for sin, but only to a degree. And that's where Hebrews 9 is so, became so enlightening to me. Because it states in there that the sacrifices given were for the purification of the flesh. So I want you to think of a weed, right? The plant analogy, but on the negative side, right? We always talk about, oh, it's bearing fruit, trees. Well, what is a, a tree of death? Like, what's a bad tree? Well, a weed, right? And weeds also bear fruit, but then they, you know, corrupt the land. And so the seed of sin is kind of like that seed of a weed, and it grows, and then it pops above the ground, and all of a sudden you can see it. And the regulations given with the blood of the calves and goats is like cutting the weed off at the ground. It doesn't actually take care of the full problem. And so that's what we see in Hebrews 9, is that initially you had the purification of flesh until the time of where it says reformation. And then you had the cleansing of the conscience. That's where you can reach deep down and grab the seed and pull it out, the weed. And that's like cleansing the person from sin. We're going to get into the details of that. So that's like the 30,000-foot view of the text. I kind of want to see the patterns. Now we're going to dive into the weeds of the text or the trees of the forest. So the focal point of the covenants the first and the second in this passage, is to, is to provide a sacrifice of blood for the cleansing of sin. Under the first, it is the cleansing of sin-stained flesh. And in the second, it is the cleansing of sin-stained conscience. So the first question I have when I read this 
passage is why blood? Why is the shedding of blood required to atone for sin? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to creation. And some profound verses in the creation narrative, the creation story, uh, verse 3, Genesis 1, verse 3, I think is very was very instrumental in me understanding exactly what's being said. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Very short verse, very profound. When God spoke, it became. Simple as that. When God speaks, it is. It can't change. And so what we see later on in the fall is that God speaks a command to Adam. And he says, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. He speaks, it is. And then what happens? Adam eats of the tree, right? So death must occur in order for righteousness to be, or in order for justice to be enacted on God's part. A death must happen because of a violation of God's command. And when you violate God's command, death must happen. It, are, it has been written in the very foundations of the world. Additionally, we see in Leviticus uh, chapter 17 that the, uh, for the life of the flesh is the blood. And this is referring to all animals, actually. In Leviticus, the context is man and animal. The life of a man and the life of an animal, all flesh, is blood. As a side note, during all the abortion debates, uh, I encountered a lot of people who would say, oh, life is actually in the breath of a person, right? They would go back to the Hebrew and say, oh, look, the word nefesh, it means breath or soul. And so actually the blood is not the life. Well, fodder for an argument with Christians who want to support that for... Um, Christians, I say, very lightly, uh, Leviticus 17 makes it clear. Life is associated with blood. That's just a tangent. Back to the main text. Uh, similarly, in verse or chapter 17, verse 14, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So here we see that God has established a very firm rule. You violate his law, death must occur. Well, what is the measure of death, though? How do you know a death has occurred? The shedding of blood. Because the life is in the blood, as God has said in Leviticus 17. And so what we see back in the fall story is that Adam and Eve sinned, and then what happened? Well, they were covered with skins of animals. Well, you can imply there is that there was shedding of blood. Right? There was a sacrifice made. Because God didn't just kill Adam and Eve right there, as you notice, but a death did occur. So then the question is, why does the blood of animals atone for sin, as I had thought? Like, oh, the blood of animals is atoning for sin? Well, that's where understanding what is the purpose of the shedding of animal blood is really important. And Hebrew 9, Hebrews 9 makes that clear. It can only atone, as I'm going to say, the fruit of sin, which we don't want to say the fruit of sin in a positive way, but you might be able to talk about it as like the effects of sin or like it can cleanse the flesh is what I'm trying to say, but it can't get rid of the seed of sin sown within us. And that was always the problem. The problem with the first covenant 
was that it could never fully atone for all of the sins of the people. Because what would happen is they would first hear the word, the law, they would sin, and they would go sacrifice. Then as you probably have read your Old Testament, there's this cycle of, well, then they sinned again, and they disobey, and they sacrifice, and then they turn away from God. And we have this continual cycle of sinning, sacrifice, repeat. And we have this, we have this issue that's kind of happening where all the sins, past, present, and future, are not being dealt with. And so there's a need for a new covenant. And that's the title of the sermon, the need for a new covenant. And from the beginning of time, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 7, one of the passages read for our scripture reading, uh, there was always a plan for the, for the blood of Christ to be spilled to atone for sins, not the blood of animals. Right? That's why the first is, was called the ministry of death, because the law was given with regulations to atone for the purification of the flesh, but it could not fully save a person. And so the thrust of the first covenant is to establish the rule by which we are judged and to offer a way to cleanse the flesh. And now I want to make the connection, and I have a question with that connection. The law given, has it ever changed? Right? Does the purpose of the law change from the, new, from the old to the new? And that was a question I wrestled with a lot when coming upon this passage, was I often heard, oh, the Mosaic Covenant, that was faith by, or that was um, salvation by works. And the New Covenant is salvation by faith. And what is assumed in that is that the law was given in order to save people. But as we read in Romans, Paul makes it very clear that the law is given for a specific purpose. It is to hold people culpable to their sin. Right? It makes known sin. And that's why it's called a ministry of death. Because the law can't save us. It is unable to save us. Though it is good, truly, true, and holy, uh, it can't save us. And this is why people accused Paul uh, of um, antinomianism or anti-lawlessness. Because he would talk this way and they'd be like, oh, so the law doesn't matter. So you think the law is bad. Right? And that's a, that's a bad implication of what's being said. Because then he goes back, he says, by no means, in Romans. He says, by no means, we are to uphold the law. Well, why are we to uphold the law? The law is given to show us a sin, but it also is given as a guidepost of what is right and good action. <clears throat> and so Hebrews 9 succinctly talks about this inability of the old covenant to fully save a person and why we need new blood for salvation. As it says, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so what we see is that the blood of Christ covers sin so that we are freed from dead works, and we can serve the living God. The old sacrifices could not do that. They did not have the ability to do it because of the nature of the blood. 
Now, if we think about it, what exactly is different? Well, you're probably thinking, well, that's obvious. Christ is a person without sin, but I really want us to meditate upon that. Right? An animal does not have a conscience like a person does. An animal is not um, knowing God's law and then violating it and needing to sacrifice to it. And most importantly, an animal is not made in the image of God, but a person knows God's law. And it is said in Romans 1, all people actually knows, know God's law. Uh, all people have a conscience. And all people have sinned against that conscience and then incur guilt. And we actually talked about this. We had a dinner for six. Well, we had seven last night. And it was an interesting conversation because it was brought up that if you go about the world and you talk to different cultures and religions, every single religion and culture has some sort of sacrificial system to atone for some guilt in one way or another. And this is a really good sign that shows us that all people know that they're guilty in a sense. They have incurred some guilt. But the issue is that the knowledge of the law cannot just save you from that guilt. And that's you know, an argument against people who want to say you know, the natural knowledge um, of God is able to save. Well, no, it's only the special knowledge of God, special revelation as we call it, that is able to save. <laughs> and so Christ, incarnate as a person, has different blood. And that's really important to understand. He has different blood. And on top of that, his blood is not stained by sin because he never sinned. Right? Sin was pressing in on him, tempting him. Uh, that's what the temptation of Satan was. He was being tempted to sin, but he never sinned. And so what we have is we have a person now in Christ who never sinned and is completely uh, without blemish or without stain of the corruption, who then was sacrificed on our behalf. And so this blood now is able to save. This blood is really important. Therefore, as it says... Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression com committed under the first covenant. So once again, the connection here that we see is that transgressions committed under the first covenant are redeemed, the people are redeemed under the second. So the, the function of the law hasn't changed. And that was really important for me to understand. And I think out in the Christian, I don't think you guys all think this, but out in the Christian world, there is a common understanding that the law tries to save. And so you can get a lot of lawlessness in Christian circles because they think, oh, the old is kind of done away with. We don't have to worry about anything in the old covenant. Uh, but as Augustine says, the old is the new concealed and the new is the old revealed. There is a connection there. And what is new about the new covenant is the blood. And it was necessary that Christ suffer and die because it is necessary that we have blood that can actually atone for our sin. That is why I would argue it says in scripture, it is necessary that he went to the cross. Right? From the beginning, from the fall of Adam, it is known, I would argue, by Christ that he must go forth, become incarnate, suffer, or be sinless, suffer and die in place for us. 
the sacrificial system of bulls and goats was never intended to save. And hence, we have what is called progressive revelation. Over time, the revelation of God's salvation is shown more fully. And now, in our age, it is complete because Christ has gone, been, been sacrificed for our sins and has now entered heaven, the most holy place. Now, that's a lot of talking about the old and the new, what's the connection, what's the difference, what's the need for the new. But what does it mean for the Christian? Like, why do we need to even know this stuff? Does it even, like, matter a lot to us? Like, yeah, I know the blood of Christ covers me. We're all good. Uh, that's really uh, what a lot of Hebrews 10 is about. It's kind of the application of um, salvation to the believer. But I'm going to foreshadow it and dive into it a little bit because I think it's really important uh, in our lives. Understanding the difference between, you know, the blood of the old and the new and understanding why we need a new covenant impacts how we live our lives. Uh, and I'm going to pull a verse from Hebrews 10, 10, 15, and it says this, Christ has perfected those whom he is sanctifying. You repeat it again. Christ has perfected those whom he is sanctifying. It's a really important concept, as we saw um, mentioned in the baptism, union with Christ, that Christ has already perfected you. You cannot be more perfect in the eyes of God than you are right now in Christ. Yet, he is still sanctifying you. There's that already not yet concept. Right? The blood of Christ has covered every single sin of yours, yet you are still being sanctified. And what I think that brings is a lot of comfort and a lot of security in salvation. We know that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover our sin. And because of that, we know God views us and sees us as perfect in Christ. And there's a lot of comfort in that. Because the danger is to emphasize uh, the second half of that verse. Right? Christ has perfected those whom he is sanctifying. If we emphasize the sanctification to the nth degree as the primary and only thing about our lives, what we fall into the trap of is thinking that I need to do X, I need to be perfect in order to be perfect in God's eyes. I need to act perfect in order to be perfect in God's eyes. But what we see here is Christ has already perfected you. And so we don't want to fall on into the, you know, the heirs of um, theologians like John Wesley, who argued that this, the atonement of Christ only covered past sins, and that your goal in this life is to be perfect, or to fall into the air of uh, the high um, medieval, the medieval Catholic Church, 12 to, 1200 to 1500, where grace was only given by the church, and you had to come and confess a sin and receive grace. And anytime you didn't confess a sin, you never received grace for that sin. And so you have all these outstanding sins that still have to be dealt with, hence purgatory. Um, but you can see here that what, what's happening is they have not taken into account that first part of the phrase, Christ has perfected. Right? It's only about the sanctification, only seeking after you need to act perfect now. <clears throat> Second, it helps us understand the purpose of the law. Right? The law convicts us, it shows us our sin, but it can't save. And so if we fall into the trap of, oh, I need to do the law to be perfect in God's eyes, 
then we fundamentally have missed the purpose of salvation at its core. Right? The purpose of salvation has always been through faith in Christ. Faith saves. Grace saves. The law cannot. And so we can view the law rightly. It is good. It is a guidepost. and We should live by it. But it is not what saves. And lastly, it helps us treat other Christians in, or we should treat other Christians in light of that blood, the blood of Christ. Right? Christ came and was perfect. He did not sin. And yet he was brutally murdered on the cross. And so that perfect sacrifice should inform us on how we are to treat other Christians. Right? If Christ has perfected the other Christian, we should view them as perfected in Christ. Though they are still they may sin and need sanctifying, just as Christ died for them and sanctifies them, so we are to bestow grace and treat them well. And lastly, uh, understanding the severity of the blood helps us understand the nature of the world and how we should act towards it. Uh, as I mentioned before with other cultures, you kind of see that people know they're guilty, right? The other religions set up all these sacrificial systems. And so what we can bestow to them is hope, hope for the cleansing of their guilty conscience, that they can be freed from dead works and serve the living God. And in that, our default disposition should be pity and mercy. They are lost people. And sometimes I think we neglect, like in debates about theology and like what is true and what isn't true in society, sometimes we neglect or forget, I don't want to say neglect because that can always be, that can be a negative connotation. We forget that people out there who are not Christian have a guilty conscience and they are being tormented by it. They are still culpable for their sin, but it can give some perspective into how we treat them. They know what they have done, they know it's wrong, and then they have seared their conscience, which is why when you bring about true things, there's such a visceral reaction. Have you ever noticed that? Like, you, you, you say, like, thou shall not murder, and sometimes people are like, well, I like, really hate this person, and so I want to speak ill about them. There's these visceral reactions to the law of God by non-believers, and a lot of that goes down to they're constantly being uh, convicted, or I won't say convicted, but their conscience is constantly bearing witness against them and will at the day of judgment about what they have done wrong. And so it is a way that we can offer hope. Right? We can talk to them in that, um, in that sense. And so I want to leave you with this. Uh, the difference between the two covenants lies in the blood. And this helped me understand the... Um, the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, where he says, you cannot put new, new wine into old wineskins. You must need new wineskins. You cannot put new blood into the old system. You cannot re-sacrifice Christ over and over again. It's a fundamentally different sacrifice. And it is one that can cleanse you, clear your conscience, and allow you to serve the living God. And that's what I want to leave you with. The blood is sufficient so that you may serve the living God and your conscience can be cleansed. And so I encourage us to go forth and do that, to serve the living God, because the blood is sufficient. We no longer have to sacrifice animals. Let me pray. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice you made on Calvary, uh, atoning for our sins. And we ask that we would live in light of this uh, day in and day out, knowing that uh, you have perfected us and you are sanctifying us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.